Welcome to this, the 29th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society of Haematology. This podcast covers the guideline for the management of chronic lymphocytic leukaemia. We're recording over Zoom due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and apologise for any loss of sound quality that may occur. I'm Nilama Parry-Jones, consultant haematologist at Aniram Bevan University Health Board. I'm here with my colleagues, Dr. Renata Valeska, consultant haematologist at University Hospitals Dorset NHS Trust, and Dr. Helen Parry, consultant haematologist and senior lecturer at University Hospitals Birmingham. We're going to discuss the key messages of the recently updated BSH guideline for treatment of CLL. We hope our podcast will stimulate your interest to read the guideline in full at www.b-s-h.org. The last three to four years since the publication of the 2018 guideline have seen a paradigm shift in treatment of CLL with the traditional chemoimmunotherapy model challenged by novel targeted therapies. But we know that immunodeficiency remains a hallmark of CLL and the COVID-19 pandemic has illustrated this starkly, posing particular challenges for our patients and to us as CLL clinicians. In this podcast, we will discuss choice of treatment for CLL in frontline and relapse settings, impact of immune dysregulation with respect to antimicrobial prophylaxis and vaccination, and the challenges of the COVID pandemic the evolving evidence on vaccine response, treatment of our patients with COVID antivirals and monoclonal antibodies, and the potential role for prophylactic monoclonals such as Evershield. So, Renata, could we start by discussing pre-treatment assessment? Thank you, Neil. Yes, when we see patient in clinic, it's very important that we follow most recent IWCLL criteria. So although, as you alluded, we have seen big change in the treatment, but however, how we assess patients before starting treatment still remains. That obviously been challenged before um, in chemoimmunotherapy era with the CLL, early CLL MRC trials, more recently German CLL 12, um, but the standard of care is still following specifically design criteria. So um, symptomatic patients, patients who are in stage CCLL, who have either hemoglobin less than 100 and or platelets less than 100, and they've got a bulky disease. So I would like to refer for um, IWCLL summary, which patients need to be treated. If they don't fulfill those criteria, they need to be continued on active monitoring. When you consider treating the patient, it's very important to check um, their CLL for TP53 aberration. And also IGHV mutation status might be also very helpful to guide you what type of treatment um, they will respond best to. The other very important assessment is to um, check what type of medications they're on. Um, specifically, are they CYP3A inhibitors or inducers? Because whichever inhibitor, kinase inhibitor, we consider, consider for treatment, obviously there might be an interaction. 
and of course other medical problems, specifically cardiac problems. And if there is a, any history of cardiac problems, they need to be thoroughly evaluated. We probably will go into um, that problem further and renal function. Patient themselves may have an idea how they want to be treated, whether they want a pill a day or they want quick, short, fixed duration treatment. Um, and it's very important to understand what patient like the best and what would work for them the best. And actually, not that long ago, back in on the 17th of June 2021, there was a nice guideline issued on shared decision making, NG197, which I would urge anyone to have a look at that and do all the um, toolkits which have been provided together with that guidance. So I think for the successful treatment, it's very important to understand what patient wants, to understand what will work with the patient, because you don't want to um, give maintenance type of treatment for someone who's got a compliance issue. So I think this is once we've got obviously all the um, comorbidities assessed, all the polypharmacy assessed, I think it's important to take all that to the patient and have a long chat um, what type of, type of treatment um, they would like before making decision. So that's a really nice, broad introduction to choice of therapy. And we're in the happy position in 2022 of having different classes of drugs and still the old-fashioned chemoimmunotherapy. Could you tell us a bit more about how the factors that you've outlined will affect that choice, and in particular, P53 status will, will affect our treatment choice. So let's pick out TP53 first. So obviously, if somebody has got TP53 aberration, so by that I mean TP53 deletion or TP53 mutation, those patients' preferred option would be May a continuous type of treatment, maintenance type of treatment with brutantyrosine kinase inhibition. So at the moment, we can um, give the original brutantyrosine kinase um, inhibitor, ibrutinib, or we've got a more selective um, BTKI inhibitor, acalobrutinib. So we've we essentially spoiled for choice um, for this patient group. Now, venetoclax um, monotherapy is is still there for patients who are who cannot have either venetoclax maintenance therapy or venetoclax um, obinutuzumab uh, for the patients who can have a BTKI. We, we consider the BTKI as a better option for those patients, although we don't have head-to-head -head, um, data um, between those two different types of treatment. Um, and indeed with CLL14, um, there were some patients with P53 aberration. With 17P deletion, there were 17 patients in total. And with TP53 mutation, there were 19. So there were some, um, and they didn't do as well as other groups. But again, um, there is probably not enough um, patients being treated with that combination to, to say, say for certain, I'm sure there will be uh, more clinical trials, which, which, and if you're hopefully in future, um, we will know better how to approach that problem. So at the moment, um, although the CDF is 
CDF and NICE approval is done for fit and unfit patients because Brutantourism kinase inhibitors and B BCL2 inhibitors are so well tolerated that essentially the fitness of the patient doesn't really matter. But for approval purposes, we've got, uh, we can give either venetoclax or binotuzumab or brutantyrosine kinase inhibitor for patients who are not fit for immunochemotherapy. So that's for approval purposes. Um, and on CDF, we can give venetoclax or binotuzumab for the fit patients at the moment. Um, the, obviously, that can that probably will be reviewed in future. We can also offer them the BTKI as well. So progression-free survival, um, we've seen on trials, they were comparable. So it really doesn't matter um, which patient, which which type of inhibition you choose. Obviously, venetoclax or binotuzumab offers a fixed duration treatment for one year only, so it kind of mim mimics the design we've seen with chemoimmunotherapy. And the other positive thing about venetoclax or binotuzumab, because it's a fixed duration, we've got a second bite. Um, on the cherry, and we can retreat those patients with venetoclax again. Depends, obviously, how quickly they relapse post venetoclax or binotuzumab. So, Renata, in 2022, is there a role still for conventional chemoimmunotherapy in frontline treatment of CLL? At the moment, as the guidelines stand, there is chemoimmunotherapy there in our guidelines, but for very, very well-selected group of patients, and it's only for FCR. So we actually have written the guidelines that bendamastin combination and chlorambucil are not recommended. So if you do have a patient who is young, who has got very good prognostic factors, you could discuss with them chemoimmunotherapy like FCR. However, you also need to counsel them about a possibility of future myelodysplastic malignancies, which can occur around about 2% of patients. And the problem with that is um, if they do have secondary AML or MDS, these malignancies are very, very difficult to treat. So I have to say, um, since being able to give the patient venetoclax or binotuzumab as well as BTKI, I've been very wary of uh, suggesting chemoimmunotherapy to patients because trying to find those very good risk patients who do need treatment is very, very difficult. So going back to BTKI, which as we've heard is now a good choice of frontline treatment, how do we manage patients who develop adverse events or intolerance to BTKI? So we've got the data um, of treatment of ibrutinib, which is obviously one of the very first BTKIs, and acalabrutinib. And we know that patients who are intolerant to ibrutinib can be successfully treated with um, acalabrutinib. Um, However, if the patient progresses on BTKI, either ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, um, they probably should, should be switched to different type of um, inhibitor. So then we should consider venetoclax-based type of therapies. So that's a really important distinction, isn't it, between 
intolerance to and loss of response to. Yes, indeed, because and I think it's very important to have that documented because potentially if those patients, so I, hypothetically, if the patient was on ibrutinib, um, maybe they have to come off ibrutinib for one other reason to venetoclax rather than um, maybe acalobrutinib was not available. Um, they, you could retreat them with acalobrutinib as a sort of third line um, because of previous intolerance. So they, they, as they, don't, they have not progressed on BTKI, you can try to control the disease with acalobrutinib a bit later. So ibrutinib, venetoclax, acalobrutinib. It's only a small proportion of CLL patients who are eligible for allogeneic stem cell transplant. But the timing of that in the algorithm and when to alert your transplant centre that you might have a suitable patient and how to manage their treatment with either BTKI or BCL2I uh, in that run up into the transplant period is so important. And in particular, not referring patients too late when, they, when they're double refractory. Could you say make a comment about that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, thank you. But that's a very important point. So anybody, any patients who are young with P53 aberration, especially when they start relapsing after first line of therapy. So um, say BTKI, if you if you started that patient um, on that type of treatment. Um, when you're starting the second line, I think the referral for, for allogeneic stem cell transplant should be made because obviously the whole process of um, allogeneic workup, obviously it's, it's quite lengthy. Um, so certainly patients, um, well, the whole risk category has been re-challenged since um, BTKIs and BCL2Is. So the usual one was obviously P53 aberrations and that risk still remains because by treating people with BTKI, we don't really address that genetic problem. We bypass the problem, but we're not fixing it. Um, so those patients are still poor risk. Um, with IGVH mutation, the BTKI does equally well in both groups with IGHV mutated and unmutated. And we, we've seen the data that venetoclax or binotuzumab does particularly well in mutated patients. It doesn't mean it does not work in unmutated, it does. But obviously the, the benefit is it's bigger in mutated patients. And also 11Q um, responds really well to BTKI. So 11Q is not a considered as a, as a poor risk for CLL um, anymore. So going sort of quickly back to the poor risks, really poor risk in the current era of kinase inhibition treatment are those patients who fail um, BCL2I and BTKI. Um, the only options for us then is to try to rescue them with PI3 kinase um, inhibition. So we've got still idololisiprituximab available for these patients. Obviously, PI3 um, kinase inhibitors are very difficult um, to treat, um, but obviously we, we don't have no other options. And especially somebody who is on there and hopefully responding you need to look for another line of treatment. And this is where, obviously, um, hopefully, 
tying them over to allogeneic stem cell transplant or looking for clinical trials to rescue them off um, idolalisib type of therapy because the chances are you're not going to have a durable remission on idolalisib. So identifying those patients as early as possible in the pathway is really important. Yes. So this might, might be a good point to uh, summarise what we've discussed so far. So pre-treatment investigations and indications for treatment in CLL in 2022 haven't changed from our 2018 guideline. In frontline treatment, we're in the happy position now of having two main classes of drugs, the BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibition. And the choice of which to deploy first will come down to a combination of biological factors of the CLL, patient comorbidity, patient choice, and this should be an interactive discussion with the patient uh, taking into account all of those factors. We need to identify patients who are progressing during treatment early, and in particular, identifying those who are poor risk and need early referral for consideration of transplant if they're young and fit enough. Before we move on to the issues of immune dysregulation and COVID, thinking about the near future for treatment of CLL, do you think there might soon be some data on combination therapy and other potential advances? Yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for that, Neil. I think this, this is where guidelines obviously is lacking. Well, essentially, we've got no approvals, but it's... It's very important to pick out, as we just said, those poor risk patients and treat them differently. And we've already seen data from venetoclax and ibrutinib combination getting quite a deep responses, including undetected MRD in those very, very poor risks. So this is something I hope is going to uh, be approved very soon. Um, and hopefully we can change, we can change our guidelines to include um, upfront treatment with venetoclax ibrutinib for those very um, poor risk patients. Great. Thank you, Renata. That was a really nice summary of our, our therapeutic options for CLL. So moving to Helen now, we know that a significant proportion of our CLL patients have life-threatening infections, and this is a real concern for our patients. Many have recurrent respiratory infections, possibly exacerbated by the therapy that they're on. So could you give us a, a summary of our advice on antimicrobial prophylaxis and other supportive measures that can be offered to patients with CLL? Yeah, thanks, Neil. So, yeah, around a quarter of patients will have, even at diagnosis, some um, element of immunodeficiency. And I think really what we're hoping is that the guideline will now highlight how important it is at diagnosis that we are checking patients' histories in terms of serious and recurrent infections and using that almost together with serum immunoglobulins as a signpost for picking out patients that are going to be particularly at risk probably going forward of infection. And then once you've identified patients, um, that can then help us to, just to identify who needs to go on and have some form of um, prophylactic medication. 
So in the first instance, I think it's really important that we point out that everybody at diagnosis should be recommending vaccination. Um, and we've made a booklet to go with the guideline that we hope will help uh, clinicians and patients to keep on top of where they are with their vaccination schedule. So patients are recommended routinely Prevnar 13, which is a conjugate vaccine. It's important that that's given at diagnosis. And before they receive the polysaccharide vaccine, Pneumovax 23. Patients are also advised to have an annual flu vaccine and the COVID-19 vaccination going forward. We don't recommend live vaccines in patients, so it's also important to point this out. A poor documented response to vaccination can also help when we come to apply for immunoglobulin replacement therapy for patients. So following vaccination, if patients are still suffering from significant infection, it would be wise to think about uh, antibiotic prophylaxis. And we usually trial this for six months and document infections during this period of time. If patients continue to get infections, have low serum IgG immunoglobulin, less than four grams per litre, and have a poor response to vaccination, they may be patients that we then suggest have immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Following the start of this therapy, it's then also important that we monitor their infections going forward. Thanks, Helen. That's a really nice summary. So Zostavax being a live shingles vaccine is contraindicated in our, our patients. Yes, that's right. But luckily, uh, we've recently had the approval for Shingrix, which is a recombinant vaccine for uh, varicella zoster. And our patients that are aged between 70 and 79 are now eligible for this vaccine and can obtain it through their primary care practice. So that age category um, stems from the fact that Zostavax is recommended in the UK for patients aged between 70 and 79, and they've obviously adopted the same age category for Shingrix for our patients now. Thank you. So moving on to COVID, the pandemic has ongoing uh, provided major anxiety to patients with hematological malignancy in general, but to our CLL community in particular. The early data in the first wave before vaccines suggested a mortality in CLL patients of around a third. Happily, the vaccine programme has been uh, very widely taken up, but we know that CLL patients, even those who are not on therapy, have an impaired vaccine response. And I know, Helen, you as the lead author on the CLL VR study have a lot of data on this. Would you like to tell us a bit more? Yeah, thanks, Neil. So, um, well, our data and others from uh, other international groups have really shown that, yes, there is an impaired response to vaccines um, and to the COVID-19 vaccines in our patients with CLL. I think what we're now finding is obviously with um, subsequent doses, and in the UK, we're now up to the fifth dose of COVID-19 vaccine, that we do see an improvement um, with subsequent doses in terms of the response rate and also the magnitude of response to the tighter that we are, we are achieving. But there seems to be around 20% of patients that, unfortunately, despite whatever number of doses they've had, they remain refractory and don't develop an antibody response. 
And we're seeing that this plateau is really at the dose of the fourth dose stage. So we're an increment in after the second, after the third, and then it plateaus with the fourth dose. And really the 20%, um, the predictors for the poor response to vaccination of patients that are taking and tyrosine kinase inhibitors, patients that have low serum immunoglobulins. So again, important to be checking those at diagnosis and, and when starting therapy, I think, um, and patients who are about to start treatment. So those with advanced stage disease often mount poor response to vaccination. Now, obviously that's looking at the antibody response um, and the cellular arm of the immune system can be very important um, against COVID-19. I think more and more data now is coming out to support that notion. Um, we know that with the latest variant Omicron that uh, the neutralization ability of the vaccine response, antibody response, is not as good against Omicron compared to the original ancestral Wuhan strain. Um, but what we're seeing with the T cell responses is that actually they're very comparable between Wuhan and Omicron. So you're getting very good cross protection from the cellular immune system to the vaccines that are being delivered. Um, and obviously we're now onto mRNA vaccines um, within the UK generally being recommended with each dose. And if our patients are unfortunate enough to acquire COVID infection, despite having received four or five vaccine doses, what are their options then for access to antiviral or monoclonal antibody therapy? Yeah, thanks, Nils. So it's obviously really important that we uh, make our patients aware that they are eligible for treatment for COVID-19 if they test positive. And also I'm sort of recommending to patients that if they've got a PCR test at home, obviously they, they complete that. But if they now are down to their lateral flow test devices, that if they are symptomatic, they do this on more than one occasion. Um, so at least daily, um, if they suspect that they do have COVID-19 to increase the chances of testing positive. And if they test positive, um, we have access to uh, very effective antiviral therapies and monoclonal antibody now, but these need to be given really within the first five days of testing positive. So it's important that there's that swift um, notification really either through 119 or through the COVID medicines delivery unit, or if they're having no luck there really to come back to us within the, within the hospital setting. Um, and the therapies they're likely to be um, offered currently include Paxlovid antiviral therapy, which is an oral tablet taken for five days. Um, and that can have lots of drug interactions. So um, particularly like BTKI, we need to be pausing that. Um, and that's something that will be taken into consideration when deciding which medicines they will be um, given going forward. And then there's also remdesivir, another antiviral um, I should have said, but both of these have been shown to reduce the uh, relative risk of hospitalization and death by around uh, 80 to 90 percent. And then we've also got sotrovimab, which is a monoclonal antibody therapy. Again, around 79 percent relative risk reduction in hospitalization and death after testing positive and some efficacy um, continuing against the Omicron variant. And our CLL patients over two years since the start of the pandemic are still very frightened about COVID. Many are still very restricted in their social interactions and really feel left behind and unable to resume normal participation in society. Is there a prospect of prophylaxis for them? Yeah, so I think some encouraging data um, that I sort of can share from the CLL 
vaccine response study, um, we've recently published this in Cancer Cells, showed that actually we're, we're seeing a reduced rate of hospitalisation now in patients um, that get uh, Omicron variant compared to the prior variants. So this has come down from up to 33% to, down to 7% now with Omicron variant in vaccinated patients. So that's encouraging. The other thing to say is Evershield, uh, which is the monoclonal antibody that has been uh, licensed in a prophylaxis setting, um, is now approved by the MHRA. Um, we don't yet have access to it in this country, uh, but it is we're hoping that come the winter that this may be available for patients um, going forward and will be another option. So some hope for our, our patients. Yeah, so the ProVent trial um, was actually in an unvaccinated population of patients, um, and that found a reduction of around 70% in the relative risk of symptomatic COVID-19 infection compared to placebo. But obviously this was before the Omicron variant and also in an unvaccinated population. So there are studies now opening in the UK um, that will be looking at this monoclonal antibody and other monoclonal antibodies in a prophylactic setting amongst our vaccinated immunocompromised patients. So that will also be data to watch out for. Thank you very much, Helen. And of course the COVID information is evolving all the time and as more data emerges, please look out on the BSH website for updates. So we're reaching the end of the podcast now. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And I thank Renata and Helen for their very useful summary and discussion. Please read the guideline in full on the BSH website, where you'll also find complementary guidelines on management of cardiovascular complications of BTK inhibition and also on Richter's transformation of CLL. Please be sure to click on the supplementary information, which is not immediately obvious in the main document. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm -hmm.